Hello, this is Ricky Jones and Jonathan Dorst from the offices of River Oaks Presbyterian Church with another uh, kind of election edition of From Sunday to Monday. And uh, today we are going to be talking about the church as it enters the political arena, how to have a voice in the political arena. And uh, Jonathan, I see you have an I Voted sticker on your shirt today, so clearly you are ready to go. Yes, and uh, I've been ready all day because my morning breakfast study was in Romans 9, so that was a different kind of election. <laughs> but then, yes, I was able to vote, and I, I really like voting, in, especially in local elections. That was a little just, theological pun for you there. It was. I'm sorry, go ahead. It, it just feels like voting in local elections is more consequential mm-hmm. and um, well it really is more consequential I mean you could argue and I think somebody should argue that the present electoral college system disenfranchises probably 40 percent of Americans but that's not what we're going to talk about today so uh, <laughs> yeah and I, I'm excited about this because I know a lot of people are talking about it I find I've never been a big political guy but I find myself talking about politics this year. Maybe more than ever. More than ever. So I think so. I know it's on people's minds. And we should probably throw out a disclaimer that in this podcast and in your preaching that we're speaking as public individuals. Right. We're not right. going to share who we're going to vote for. Um, we're sort of speaking as Christian pastors. Right. We're, we're speaking for the church, the church and doing our best. And you know, obviously no one's perfect, but we're going to do our best to, to speak where the Bible clearly speaks and then to be silent where the Bible is silent. And let your conscience do the rest. Um, absolutely, thank you for that disclaimer. And I think the IRS prohibits us from. I think it, and it should, <laughs> and it should fairly. And we're not a political entity, and we should not be supporting co- candidates, and we and we won't with anything that uh, is church supported. Right. Um, just for also for further clarity, this all these questions that we're going to answer today are referencing my sermon uh, from Sunday, September twenty first. That you can find on uh, sermonaudio.com or on uh, riveroakstulsa.com. And so I, I preached on politics and how a Christian engages in politics. And so let me just kind of give you a brief overview of that sermon so you'll know, kind of understand where the questions are coming from. We had three, I had three points, which is nothing uh, surprising there, three Presbyterian points. And, the first, and my, my overarching point was this. Uh, we can and we must remain uh, one church with many opinions. Uh, you, you are not kicked out of the church for not agreeing on political issues. And the church of Jesus Christ has always been filled with many opinions uh, because it's a worldwide church. It's not even just an American church, much less uh, a church for one segment of America. And so, in order, so I really was preaching not on politics, but on the question of how can we be one church with many political opinions. And my three points were: first of all, you have to prioritize your beliefs. Uh, what beliefs are absolutely fundamental for being a Christian? Beliefs such as the, the deity of Christ and uh, salvation through His atoning work on the cross. What were what beliefs are foundational for uh, government and politics? Beliefs such as uh, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people. And then what beliefs are just preferences. And what I mean by preferences uh, is we all, if we all agree that, that every person is created in the image of God uh, with certain inalienable rights, if we can all agree on that, which I've, as far as I know every American does, mm-hmm. then 
the only thing we're really arguing about is how to go about best protecting those beliefs. And those are preferences. And if you understand them that way, then that completely changes the argument. All of a sudden, you're not my enemy who's trying to deprive me of certain rights. You just have a difference of opinion about how we're going to go about uh, ensuring those rights. So that's the first thing. The second thing I talked about was rejecting tribalism, which really can be just boiled down to the issue of uh, you do not have to be one or the other. In America, we think you have to be either uh, for football or for basketball. You have to be for Elvis or for the Beatles. And, and, that, and that stuff, when it comes into political arenas, is just nonsense. Uh, you can be for the police and for black lives. You can be for veterans and against uh, military interventionism. You, you don't have to choose one or the other. You can be both. And, uh, and, and the inability to understand that in America has really led to a lot of deep, deep division and, and hatred and needs to be discussed. And then the third thing was simply uh, we must embrace other believers. Uh, we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt, and we have to love each other, which we don't tend to do very well when it comes to these kind of personal issues. So if you want to listen to that sermon, that'd be great. Uh, but that's kind of, we're going to be answering questions today based on those, uh, on that sermon. So Jonathan, what questions did we get? Yeah, we, I think we had a record number of questions. Woo! <laughs> what a shock. So I've tried to boil them down and sort of uh, take two questions that sounded alike and make them one. Um, so we'll start with, I thought it was a good question. Question was are, are theological conservatism and liberalism preferences, what about scriptural inerrancy, that typically underpins theological conservatism? And I think what, what's behind this question is recognizing there's a difference between theological and political liberalism. Yeah. That's, Want to expound on that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point, Jonathan. And it, it is confusing. We use the same words, uh, liberal and conservative. And it's confusing because historically, at least, um, there has been kind of a, a similarity. The, the camps tend to overlap. Uh, people who are biblically or theologically conservative have tended to be more politically conservative, and people who have historically been more theologically liberal have tended to be more uh, politically liberal. That's not true anymore. Uh, that, that's really changed, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the 1920s, Political uh, liberals and our theological liberals really started stressing the uh, the work of, of Christ in the here and now, and and started working on liberating the poor and uh, racial reconciliation. And theological conservatives started really stressing uh, personal responsibility and um, and not and and preaching the gospel of Christ uh, as as uh, spiritual reality. Sorry. And so those two, those two kind of camps lined up for a long time. But in the last 20 years or so, a lot of theological conservatives, and a theological conservative is someone who believes that the Bible is true, believes that uh, what it says about Jesus, what it says about um, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and the miracles are all, is all true. Uh, but, they, but we as theological conservatives have realized that that doesn't mean that we don't help the poor. As a matter of fact, it demands that we do. And so now you'll find theological conservatives kind of all over the map politically, right. which I think is a, a, an advantage. And you'll also find not only theological liberals, but just 
atheists all over the map as, as well. Um, you, you have atheistic conservatives as well as atheistic liberals. Um, so that's that's a little bit of the, the difference. That theologically, I'm a very conservative person, and I think that's what the church should be. Uh, politically, I, I'm trying to my best to be non-committal. I think, like I said, it's all just preferences as far as what you what rights you want to defend and how you think it's best to defend them. Right, and I think you, you kind of. You, you stated the linchpin there for the theological, which is really the issue is about the veracity of Scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, is it the very Word of God? Conservative theologians believe more it is the Word of God, and liberals t- t- tend to stay away from that and then uh, sort of get away from the historical confessions of the church. But, yeah, you don't have to be – those don't always line up. They don't we, always line up. You, see and, it. and it's important to understand that because that, you, you see this in, in, the, in the dialogue, right, the political dialogue. There's this mentality that uh, – just to use the labels, there's a mentality that if you're a Democrat, you don't believe the Bible. Right. And that's just not true. That is absolutely not true. Uh, and so it's important under, that we, we separate those two in our minds. We tried to say that. We used to try to say that on our website, and it caused so much confusion we had to take it away. But one of our early mottos was that we are theologically conservative, socially liberal, and politically uh, confused. And people didn't get it, and so I took it down. Yeah. But um, Well, and the example I was just thinking of was Christopher Hitchens, mm-hmm. who politically was very pretty conservative, mm-hmm. but was an atheist far from a theological conservative and those two just don't always go together. Yeah, and then so. another example notice that would be Tony Campalo yeah. who when it comes to the Bible when it comes to the work of Christ is right down the middle uh, believes everything I believe about the atonement mm-hmm. but uh, finds himself on the left wing of every political issue so, so. very true okay next question what does it mean and look like to argue politics or other issues like Christian that's a great question. I think, uh, and I'm going to talk about this in this week's sermon, but I think the keys to uh, the key to arguing politics like a Christian is to follow Paul's command to speak the truth in love. And so the first thing it means is you have to ask yourself the question, am I loving this person? Or am I just trying to prove myself right? Am I just trying to prove him wrong? Um, and, and, it, and it varies according to the person. Like some people uh, love to have a good argument. Yeah. And Loving them is giving them a good argument, and you're not trying to beat them up or make them feel bad or make them look bad. Some people just, that's the way they think. They're external processors. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpening iron. I'm not one of those people. I have a hard time arguing with somebody without getting my feelings hurt, so I try to stay away from these issues. But I have friends who, I mean, their idea of a great Friday night is to go out, have dinner, and just go hammering tongs on politics and then hug each other and go home. I mean, they just love it. And I'm like, okay, y'all have a great time with that. I'm not coming. But, uh, you know, are you loving the other person? Are you showing them respect? Are you humble? Are you generous? Are you gracious? Are you not challenging their motives? Um, that, that's a big deal, you know, when, when uh, there's a temptation when someone argues a different side of politics than you uh, to call them and say, you're not a patriot or you don't love this country. That's just foolish. It's foolish. It's just a disagreement over how to protect our rights and what, what are the biggest threats. Some people think the biggest threat 
to American rights is over-intrusive government. We call them conservatives. Some people think the biggest threat is racism or poverty. We call them liberals. But we're all on the same team. And I think if you understand that we're all on the same team and you're not trying to hurt each other's feelings, you're not trying to belittle or dismiss somebody, y'all can just go at it. Um, but you need to make sure you know the person you're arguing with. So, and I'll talk more. I'm going to talk a whole lot about that. I'll talk for 30 minutes about that on Sunday morning. So please come, River Oaks Presbyterian. <laughs> Good. I'm not going to add anything to that. Let's press on. Next question. Is it, is it proper to express our biblical principles through government policies? In other words, should we strive to have the Bible be used directly as a basis for the laws of a secular society? That is... Uh, an incredibly deep question. Should the Bible be the basis for the laws of a secular society? Um, on one hand, I mean, you, you could argue both, and if, you, if you're interested in this discussion, you can look up the history of the theonomy movement in America, or if you want to go back much deeper in history, you can look up uh, Christendom, uh, what Europe tried to do during the Middle Ages. Um, there's a couple of answers to that. The first way of looking at that is kind of covenantally as we look at the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, God did set up a government and told uh, Israelites how to run their government. Um, as we transition into the New Testament, we see that, that, he is, that God has established Jesus as the king, and his government is, is, hasn't been dissolved, but his government has changed to a spiritual kingdom that transcends all political boundaries. And his kingdom is, is the church. And so instead of governing a nation by the laws that he's given us, we govern the church by the laws that he's given us. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, if someone was sexually immoral, they ran the risk of being stoned. Uh, in the New Testament, if someone's sexually immoral, we excommunicate them. In both cases, you're cutting them off from life. In the Old Testament, it's cutting them off from physical life. In the New Testament, that's cutting them off from spiritual life. But it, in both cases, it's cutting them off. Uh, so that's an important transition. Um, if you're going to say that the, you should make the Bible the foundation of your government, then ultimately that would mean you're making the Ten Commandments the basis of all your laws. Well, you can't just arbitrarily choose which commandments you're going to agree with and which ones you're not. You have right. to take them all as one, which means you have to deal with that first commandment. First commandment is you shall no, have no other gods before me. And so if we're going to enforce that through the, for, uh, through the instrument of law, through the sword, that would mean basically coercing people to Christianity through force. They, they tried that in the Middle Ages. It did not work. It was a disaster. Uh, other religions try that today. That's what Islam does in some nations today, and it's, it's a tragic disaster. And I don't think I know anybody who would agree that you ought to do that today. So therefore, the second you say, okay, we should not enforce the first commandment, you're really bringing into the, uh, into the issue the question of, well, then should we enforce any commandments? And that, that's a great discussion, and I can't go into that completely. I, I think we should. Uh, I think the, the moral law is the basis for what makes a human uh, thrive, makes society work. Uh, so uh, I, I think at least the second table of the moral law, which is the fourth through the tenth commandment, that's the Sabbath day commandment through thou shalt not covet. I think all of those should be enforced. I think they should be the, the underlying basis for our civil government, but I think we should 
discuss that in the public arena. And I love democracy, and I think democracy is the best way to agree on how we're going to enforce those laws. Uh, it's a great question. Yeah. Thousands upon thousands of pages have been written on it, and that's that's about the Absolutely. best I can do. All right, well, that's a hard question. Give me an easier one. It is, but I, I just want to wrap up with uh, my comments. Yeah, I'm sorry um, about that. That's all right. I, I think that's right. The short-term way of saying that is I, I really think that God for since Jesus intends for the Bible to govern the church. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly the Bible has influence and uh, application to all areas of life. Mm-hmm. And we as individuals should think about our politics and the way that we live in biblical terms. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we're not theonomous. Uh, the Bible governs the church, not necessarily society. Yeah, And that's way. not to say that society wouldn't be better off. They would be better off if they followed the laws of the Bible. Absolutely. But the question then becomes, is the, what's the best way of getting people to follow the laws of the Bible? Is it through the sword? Is it through coercion and politics and laws? Or is it through changing their hearts through the gospel? And I guess you can probably tell by the way I framed the question. I believe it's through the gospel. Yes. But, so there you go. Good. Okay, next question. Are there any transcendent political issues around today? Anything for which it is true to say... No, that's absolutely right or wrong. We cannot agree to disagree. Oh, yeah, of course. I think there are. Uh, I think abortion is one of those, uh, murder um, under any circumstance. The problem is it's almost hard to find them because we, if they're transcendent, we agree on them, you know. Yeah. And so, but, uh, so it's hard to say, you know, just in America, you know, aren't any of these issues that we argue over, aren't they transcendent? Not really, because we already agree on them all. So, Really, uh, I would say, like I said, abortion is probably the only one that we absolutely agree on or disagree on. Um, that the death penalty. The death. Well, we do. Yeah, we argue about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for but compare other nations. You know, in Saudi Arabia, they still behead you for uh, giving up the faith, for giving up Islam. You know, that's wrong. They shouldn't do that. And there's really not room for a political, <laughs> there's no room for debate about that. You should not uh, behead someone for no longer worshiping Allah. Uh, so, like I said, it's kind of hard to figure that out in our nation. And, and But look at history, you know, slavery, the way it was practiced uh, in America, race, racial slavery uh, based on kidnapping, that was evil. That was a transcendent issue, one that there was not room to disagree about. Um what are some other ones? I just think of other nations and throughout history, uh, the way women were treated for centuries, mm-hmm. um, you know, child abandonment, infanticide, those kind of things. But I, I would say within the, the typical American debate, I, I think there's pretty much, again, they're all preferences. Like I don't know anybody who argues that racism is okay. If there's anybody out there arguing that racism is okay, you're wrong. You need to read the book of James, and you need to repent. But, you know, the the question then becomes, how do we fight racism, and what role does government play in that? And there's a lot of spectrum there. But I I think there's a lot of transcendental issues. They just don't tend to be the kinds of things that we argue about. Good. And we got a number of questions about abortion. Yeah. That is such a hot an issue and somebody asked a good question i thought have i i've been told that if i vote for a candidate that is not pro-life i am participating in the sin of abortion do you believe this is accurate or is that an oversimplification that's a great question 
I think that's a gross oversimplification. And I'll tell you that, I'll tell you why. First of all, it's just not fair to say that I am responsible for everything that somebody I vote for does. We're just not given the option of a perfect candidate. We can we have to choose between the candidates that we have. And so um, it's, no long, it's no more fair to say that someone who votes for a pro-choice candidate is responsible for the abortions that take place than it is fair to say that someone who voted for George Bush, for instance, is responsible for everybody who died in Iraq during the Iraqi war. Um, those are just different issues, and it's not fair, it's not true uh, to paint uh, those people th- with that kind of brush. The second reason why is because it's just not as simple as it sounds. Not everybody who's pro-life, not, let me phrase, rephrase that, not everybody who claims to be pro-life really is. Uh, there is a, There are a lot of people who have kind of run on a pro-life ticket, but when the rubber hit the road, found a way to not vote for uh, pro-life issues. And there are a lot of people who, though they were pro-life, the the things they tried to do to to bring about, uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade didn't work. The the best historic example would be Ronald Reagan. I I believe Ronald Reagan was pro-life. I don't doubt that. He appointed three people to the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, Anthony Scalia and uh, Justice Kennedy, two of those three ended up being pro-choice. Uh, so he was a pro-life candidate, but rather than overturning Roe versus Wade, his his uh, appointees confirmed it. So it's just not that simple. Uh, the political life is not that simple. And the third issue is, uh, now I'm not pro-choice. I want to make that extremely clear. I am a pro-life person. I think the Bible demands that. But there are a lot of pro-choice Christians out there who think abortion is wrong but don't think the best way to stop abortion is through outlawing it. Mm. Um, and, and, the, and they, they, again, that's just a disagreement about the way you go about stopping things. Now, I disagree with them, and I'm not trying to give you my opinion on every little thing, but on this issue, I feel like I have to. Um, but I want to inform you that those people exist there yeah there's just a lot of shades of gray there are and and we we're i think we're quick to slap on labels and and this is a really hard issue because it so is. many christians do have such a burden for the unborn you and i included yes yes and but, i think every progressive should i think every liberal should have a heart for the unborn i, I agree um but the way we go about protecting the unborn uh, we, we can disagree mm-hmm. on, on methods and strategies and, and candidates. So, well, the next one is a big one that I've heard a lot this year. What if, you, we'll preface this by saying in your sermon, or maybe mm-hmm. it was Q&A time yes, on sir. Sunday, you said uh, you need to, sometimes you just need to pick the char- the candidate with the best character. Yeah. And so Let's talk yeah. to that about that for a second. Yeah. So we're talking here, and this is a great segue. We're talking here about the difficulty of the pro-choice, pro-life discussion. And or so some some issues are just deep, they're hard. Sometimes you just don't know all the issues. Um, you don't know where a candidate is going to stand on every issue. And sometimes you don't know, never do you know what issues are going to be a big deal tomorrow. You know, in the 2000 election, we had no idea that we were voting for the candidate who was going to have to deal 
with the ramifications of the September 11th attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. And so since you can't possibly know every issue, you can't possibly know what any candidate believes about every issue, one of the things I encouraged was that people ultimately are going to have to choose candidates based on their character. Who do you trust? So now that is a preface to this question. Yeah, so the question is, what if neither major candidate is thought to have good character? And then the, another similar question is, how do we vote on character when the tribal landscape you described and mass media make it almost impossible to, deter- to determine? I, I think those are two great questions. I want to answer the f- second one first. Um, I think you are responsible as a voter to do everything you can to find out the character of the people you're voting for. And honestly, if you want to find that information out, it's available. Uh, There is no lack of information available right now. And and so I would encourage you to to look through all the the landscaping, all the, uh, you know, the tribalism, the name calling, look past the the simplistic uh, depictions by uh, some of the mainstream media and really go into some of the in-depth work that is done on the characters of the candidates, especially the major candidates. Read their own words for themselves. Look at their tactics. Look at their history and determine, is this a person that I can trust? I think I can trust. And if you've done that, as is the case in this particular election, this presidential election, many people feel like they can't trust the character of either of the two major candidates, my encouragement would be don't vote for either one of them. And a lot of people are going to say, well, if I don't vote for one, then I'm, you know, by default voting for the other. That is not true. You are not responsible for what other people do. You are responsible for what you do. And if you cannot in good conscience say this person has the character to lead this nation, which has, is just an unbelievable responsibility. I mean, the, the leader of this nation impacts literally every human on the planet. That's just how powerful the United States of America is today. If you can't say this person has the character to do that well, do not vote for him or her. Um, find a, car- a candidate that you can vote for. And it is sad. I'll be honest. I, I feel like I had this conversation with someone uh, Sunday who's from a completely different political party than I am, but he just said, you know, in every election I can remember, I felt like both candidates had the character to do it. Yeah. You know, and and, and I agreed. I, you know, and we voted differently. Mm-hmm. In every election, I can say we voted differently, but in every election up until now, I have felt like, and I've been voting since 1988, I felt like every candidate had the character to lead the nation. A lot of people don't feel that way today. So next question. As a Christian, how do you participate politically if you feel the candidates don't share your trust in Christ? Is it better to not ju- just not participate? You kind of talked about that, but is, yeah. I think the question is, are you, is it ever okay to just sit out? You know, that's, that's some people's opinion. And, you know, and I don't, uh, I, I know some very uh, in. Uh, very intelligent theological minds who just never vote. Um, one of my seminary professors, who I respect deeply, uh, has never voted in an election and and feels that way on principle. Wow. Um, he also has never said the Pledge of Allegiance because he thinks it uh, he thinks it violates the Third Commandment, which is fascinating. Mm. And I love him and respect him and disagree with him. Uh, 
So I, I'm not going to say that you can't sit out, but I also want you to know that you can be active. And I, I tend to think you should. I've never sat out an election, and I would hate for anyone else to. So. What do you so I just always want to vote because I feel like if I don't vote, I have no right to complain. <laughs> well, and sometimes I want to complain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like yeah, I feel like we just that's just part of the responsibility of living in a democracy. It's it a is. it's both a responsibility and an incredible privilege. Yeah. And to know that we're part of the very small percentage of people in the history of the world who've gotten to cho- choose their own leaders, I feel like you're just um, you're really kind of just ruining a great privilege if you don't vote. And, and if you look at voter turnout, it's so it's low. really sad. It is. So get out and vote <laughs> and participate. We're not telling you who to vote for. We're just telling you participate in the process. Learn, yeah, and, and do it, I think. But if you don't, that's okay, too. We still like you. What's the next question? I think we're done. Are we done? That's a great way to end. We have a... Historical question. All right, let's you, do it. You Come kind on. Of okay. Let's just jump in. All we right. got one more question. Since Christ was politically ambiguous and wholly inclusive of all souls, mm-hmm. those are big statements, at which historical point and through what means did the conservative establishment achieve such a successful conquest of evangelical life? How can this be disassembled? Does it need to be? Oh, uh, that's funny. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, of prejudices in that question. A lot of assumptions. There are. But let's go through them. I think it's a valuable thing. And I, I'm a, I was a history major. I love history. I'm a historical theology. Uh, historical theology is my interest. That's my, uh, my hobby, I guess. So mm-hmm. I can talk about this for an hour, but I won't. Jesus was dealing with uh, establishing his kingdom under the umbrella of Rome. He did not address Roman issues. Um, he wasn't neutral. He had very strong opinions about righteousness and what righteousness would look like. It's not fair to say he was neutral. He just did not uh, partake on on political issues. It wasn't like he was given the option. He wasn't a Roman citizen, and he wouldn't have been able to do anything if he were. Uh, The the change kind of—the first time that kind of changed, the the church lived under Rome for the first 300 years or so of its existence— and then with the conversion of Constantine, uh, Christianity became a politically expedient and became the religion of the Roman Empire. And that was the first big change. Uh, and Christianity has uh, been in, uh, in different positions throughout the world. In some positions uh, in, the, in Europe, for instance, Christendom was kind of the religion of the kingdom in uh, the Eastern world and Muslim and uh, Buddhist nations, obviously, it's not. And uh, honestly, Christianity has not thrived when it has been politically powerful. Uh, the spirituality of the church has not thrived uh, because there's been incentive for people to be in the church that is not spiritual, right? I mean, if you um, if you get a, are more likely to get elected because you're a deacon in your church, then you're going to want to go be a deacon in your church, and that, that's not the way it should be. And so uh, that's always been an issue and it's been an issue since or at least it's been an issue since 300 uh, AD and will always be an issue uh, until the return of Christ um, I, I guess I've already spoken earlier about I think the the relationship between the conservative establishment and the Christian church I do think is breaking down uh, one of the things that really concerns me about this election is the uh, the way certain evangelical leaders have seemed have seemed 
to find a way to endorse a candidate, even though uh, there are many, many things about that candidate that are uh, unbiblical. Uh, I think that's unwise. And, and the reason that bothers me is because I don't want to see young Christians especially say, well, if I have to be a, a conservative politically to be a Christian, then I'm going to reject both. I don't yeah. want to see that right. happen. I don't want to see the church flush out all the people who uh, do not agree with conservative politics. We have to be a church that is big enough for many opinions because that's what a gospel church is. And so, again, that was the point of my whole sermon on Sunday. We need to be one church with many opinions. So I think that's a good way to end it. It is. Hey, we did the Columbo. We just did it. One more there you, just one more question, and we got you back to the answer. All right. There you go. Thank you so much. Uh, one little announcement. This Monday, uh, my book, Too Good to Be True, will be available at a very deep discount on Amazon.com. So if you've been waiting for just the right moment to go and buy it, that great moment is coming up August 29th. Oh, that, yeah, August. It was already pretty cheap. It was already it was 11 bucks on Amazon. But it'll be like for a dollar. I mean, it's going to be like crazy cheap for one day. So buy as many copies as you want, and uh, that will be August 29th uh, on Monday. Jonathan, thanks so much for moderating what I hope was a helpful discussion. Good work. All right. We'll see you next week on From Sunday to Monday.